traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 32, Things Fixed, Things Moving. Around 530 BC, when Cyrus the Great first led Persian armies over the imposing Hindu Kush, he'd found the lands beyond to be lush, populous, and wealthy. The tribes he'd encountered lived along the upper reaches of a river known locally as the Sindhi, later called the Indus, and belonged to two main groups, the Gandharans and the Cambodia. Each grouping was known as a Mahajanapada, roughly great foothold of a tribe, with its own capital and basic administrative system. Cyrus learned that, at the time, 16 Mahajanapadas dominated a broad crescent extending from the upper Indus to the lower Ganges, a region encompassing much of modern Pakistan and northern India. The great king filed the information away for future reference, subjected the Gandharans and Cambodia to Persian tribute, and returned across the mountains to his fateful appointment with the Masagatai queen. Had Cyrus made time for a more substantial cultural exchange, he may have learned several interesting things. Among them, the fact that the people he just met seemingly so different from the Persians, were in truth their distant cousins. From a common Central Asian homeland, warlike chariot-riding Bronze Age Aryans had spread westward as far as Assyria, where they dominated local Hurrian tribes and forged the kingdom of Mitanni. At the same time, other groups had entered the northern Punjab and become known as the Rigvedic tribes, or Vedic Aryans. While the Rigvedic tribes had shared the same language and gods as the Mitanni ruling class, their connections to the later Persian tribes were more tenuous, though still significant. Even on the surface, both Aryan societies were warlike, horse-based, and tribal at their core, even if they sometimes grouped themselves into more complex structures. Like the Persian worshippers of Ahura Mazda, the Vedic Aryans constructed fire altars to worship one of their own deities, Agni, lord of the sacrificial flame. And nearly a thousand years since their parting, both Aryan peoples still shared both the word and fundamental concept of Arta, the truth. Also like the Persians, the Vedic Aryans had gone through most of their history without benefit of a written language, passing down important knowledge through oral tradition. 
The 6th century BC, coincidentally, had seen the birth of writing in both civilizations. While Darius would use the Behistun inscription and its retelling of his own personal legend to inaugurate the Persian script, the Rigvedic tribes would first use the written form of their language, Sanskrit, to finally transcribe their most ancient and sacred religious texts. Along with the most venerable of these, the Vedas, the Vedic Aryans would also create both the Upanishads, providing much of the basis for early Hindu religion, as well as the major epic known as the Mahabharata. And Hinduism wasn't the only great religion to find its origins in the region. During the 6th century BC, Vedic India was also the supposed birthplace of both Siddhartha Gautama, the spiritual teacher known as the Buddha, and Mahivara, who led a contemporary revival of the religion known as Jainism. I don't plan to go too deep into the origins or tenets of either belief system. There are obviously many resources available for those interested, other than to mention that both Buddhism and Jainism advocated nonviolence and a respect for all life. Admittedly, an odd fit with long-standing Aryan practice. The lack of written history or significant archaeological finds accounts for the scarcity of detail for the period of unchallenged Vedic rule. To briefly summarize what we do know, the oldest Vedic texts, the Rigvedas, describe an era of late Bronze Age conflicts with local Indian peoples and between rival Aryan tribes. The hymns shed light on a wide variety of contemporary professions, including warriors, priests, cattle rearers, farmers, hunters, barbers, and vintners, along with craftsmen skilled in the arts of chariot-making, cart-making, bow-making, carpentry, metalworking, tanning, sewing, and weaving. The widespread use of iron tools and weapons at the dawn of the first millennium permitted the Aryans to expand from the upper Indus into the Ganges River Valley. The new, more settled agricultural lifestyle that resulted eventually led to the coalescence of larger political units, called Janapadas. It was only during the past few centuries that the region had seen the development of the 16 large Vedic kingdoms known as Mahajanapadas. While most Mahajanapadas were monarchies or oligarchies, Cambodia and a few others were governed under a representative constitutional system similar to what would soon, in Rome, be known as a republic. In this respect, the Rigvedic tribes had less in common with their Persian cousins than with the younger and more experimental civilizations of the distant West. Among the most prominent Mahajanapadas at the time of Cyrus's visit were Gandhara and Magadha. Located on the Sindhi or Indus River, Gandhara was westernmost of the 16 kingdoms, located along the great northern road known as the Uttarapatha. Its location made it an important center of commerce and channel of communication with both Iran and Central Asia. As mentioned earlier, the Gandharan king, or Raj, Pukasadi, had been compelled to provide tribute to Cyrus's expeditionary force. Near the opposite end of Vedic India, extending from the Middle Ganges to the Bay of Bengal, was the equally powerful eastern kingdom of Magadha. 
Its capital of Rajagriha, or House of the King, was situated in a verdant valley ringed by seven hills. The well-watered alluvial soil supported a thriving agrarian economy, while the proximity of iron-rich mountains enabled the production of high-grade weapons. These dual factors fueled the kingdom's rise. In the mid-6th century BC, Magadha was ruled by Bimbisara, second king of the Haryanka dynasty. Bimbisara is reputed to have been both a contemporary of Mahavira, the previously mentioned restorer of Jainism, as well as a devout follower of the Buddha. Under Bimbisara and his son Ajatashatru, the Magadha kingdom expanded through military conquest and political marriage to eventually subsume the neighboring kingdom of Kosala. Centuries later, under the ruling Nanda dynasty, the Magadhan kingdom would give birth to the greatest civilization of ancient India, the Mauryan Empire. But that, of course, is getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Even situated on the western frontier of Vedic India, it's unclear how effectively the Gandharan Raj Pukasadi was able to glean intelligence regarding the bloody succession crisis that followed Cyrus's death. But it's likely that by 515 BC, Pukasadi had learned at least two things. The first was that a new great king had taken power in Achaemenid Persia. The second was that Darius's armies were even now approaching the Hindu Kush from the northwest. The brief Gandharan contact with Cyrus left little doubt of Persian intentions. Darius was returning to India for a conquest. It's unfortunate that, once again, we're forced to rely on barely literate Aryan tribes to record both sides of this signal encounter one that would eventually expose previously isolated India to the ancient and powerful civilizations of both the Near East and the Mediterranean. Only the rough contours of Darius's Indian campaign have made their way down to us. In 516 BC, the great king had personally led a sustained effort to solidify Persian control over the territories of Central Asia and Bactria, modern Afghanistan. The following year, Darius led his armies over the Hindu Kush and into Vedic India. Technically, the first peoples he encountered, the Gandharans and Cambodia, were already Persian subjects. In the wake of Cyrus's visit, both Mahajanapadas had been incorporated into a Persian satrapy, grouped with other territories abutting the western Hindu Kush. But it's unclear what hold, if any, the empire had retained over these lands during the intervening 15 years. For at least some of that time, Cyrus's son Bardaya had ruled over the adjacent satrapy of Bactria. Perhaps he'd continued to enforce Persian domination, or perhaps other priorities had diverted his attention. Either way, the arrival of Darius signaled the resumption of firm Persian control. As a Persian vassal, Pukasadi was obliged to host and provision the great king's army in the Gandharan city of Taxila over the long winter of 515 BC. In spring of the following year, Darius led his forces southward along the Indus River Valley. 
Details are lacking, but we know that his campaign was successful, and Persian rule was extended over the remaining local population centers. The wealthy and productive region was quickly declared the new Persian satrapy of India. Following his conquest, Darius remained in the area just long enough to set two efforts into motion. The first was to impose the full apparatus of Persian administration on both Indian satrapies. Isolated no more, the western Vedic tribes would now join a vast collection of other subject peoples extending from the Arabian to the Aegean seas. Darius's second effort was on a smaller scale, particularly in its genesis. Supposedly, the great king wished to learn how far south the Indus River flowed. Instead of relying on local intelligence, Darius turned to a trusted member of his royal entourage, a Greek named Skylax from the Ionian city of Carianda near Halicarnassus. Skylax's backstory is slim, and his relationship to the great king something of a mystery, but he'd likely shown both loyalty and aptitude to be given such a charge. Setting off from Gandhara, Skylax and his companion sailed down the Indus until they eventually reached his mouth on the Arabian Sea. From there, Skylax decided to continue onward by ship. He spent the following months crossing first the Arabian Sea, then the Indian Ocean, and finally the Red Sea, all of which he devoted significant time to exploring. Eventually putting into port in Persian-occupied Egypt, Skylax then set off overland to report his many findings to the great king's court. By the time the Greek explorer finally reached the Persian capital, the entire journey had taken him two and a half years. It probably goes without saying that Darius hadn't been idle during his long absence. One telltale sign was that the Persian capital Skylax returned to was likely neither Pasargidae nor Ekbatana, but one of two new royal cities commissioned by the great king. The first, built directly atop the flattened Elamite capital of Susa, retained the former's ancient name, if little else. The main advantage of the site was its direct access to the western half of the empire, as well as, perhaps, grinding into dust any further hopes of Elamite resurgence. The immense palace Darius raised at Susa used materials gathered from across the empire, including timber, gold, lapis lazuli, carnelian, turquoise, silver, ebony, and ivory. It also engaged both workmen and architectural elements drawn from Assyria, Babylonia, Greece, Egypt, and Persia. The palace was prominently decorated with glazed brick depictions of Persian soldiers and servants. Perhaps most notable was its monumental statue of the great king. Crafted in the Egyptian style, but with Darius dressed in traditional Persian garb, the statue featured inscriptions in Elamite, Akkadian, Egyptian hieroglyphics, and the new Persian alphabetic cuneiform script. But Susa, of course, was just a start. To be truly great, a king must build where no one has built before. Cyrus's capital of Basargidae had been well-sighted, but it would always be that, Cyrus's capital. 
Darius chose a location 20 miles to the south for the construction of his new royal capital of Parsa, better known by its later Greek name of Persepolis. Work had first begun on the city back in 518 BC and would continue long after the great king's death. The capital was sited along the river Pulwar and built on a multi-level plan with angled walls that enabled its defenders to target any approach. The city center contained an enormous platform holding several palaces, audience halls, and the royal treasury. Built mainly of gray limestone, the main Apadana Palace also featured decorative columns of Phoenician cedarwood and Indian teak, and tiled walls adorned with images of lions, bulls, and flowers. The sides of the central platform depicted soldiers, servants, and emissaries of all Persian satrapies, bearing gifts to the great king. Each group was easily identified by their distinctive clothing, hairstyle, and weapons, and the gifts they carried were often unique to their region. Like the royal palace at Susa, Persepolis was designed to reflect the unique multicultural unanimity of the Persian Empire. Administratively, Darius hewed closely to Cyrus's example, both expanding and streamlining the satrapy structure. While local vassal kings were sometimes retained, the satraps they reported to were exclusively Persian nobles, many from the families of Darius's original co-conspirators. Each satrap lived in a royal palace in a provincial capital, with its own treasury, archive, and chancellery. Such nobles were often granted land in exchange for their service, with the insightful twist that the land was typically located in a different satrapy than the one they governed. Provincial capitals were connected to one another by a network of royal roads, designed along the Neo-Assyrian model. The most famous stretch, running from Susa to Sardis in Anatolia, ran for 2,500 kilometers and could be covered on horseback in 90 days. Each satrapy was obliged to provide a fixed amount of annual tribute, based on its relative wealth and unique resources. The only region exempt from taxation was the Persian homeland south of the Zagros. The system resulted in the acquisition of vast amounts of precious metals, both gold and silver, which were soon used to mint a new Persian coinage known as the Darik, after, well, guess who? Gold Dariks could only be minted in the capital, on the king's orders, and had an impressive purity of around 95%. Silver Dariks could also be minted by important satraps and generals in the provinces, and were often the preferred form of payment for Greek mercenaries serving in Anatolia. Darius also instituted new taxes on landed estates, marketplaces, and livestock. He used the increased revenue to maintain and improve imperial infrastructure, including the funding of large-scale irrigation projects. In every respect, Darius wanted his empire to relay a simple message of power, protection, and stability. The only price required for admission was absolute submission to the Persian king. 
even unconquered lands beyond the empire's frontier were allowed to signal their obedience and desire for entry through a symbolic tribute of earth and water. Returning from India to Persia in 514 BC, Darius was greeted by the noble Otanis, the original co-conspirator whose lineage rivaled the great king's own. While Darius had campaigned in the east, Otanis had been dispatched to install Polycrates' exiled brother, Silason, as tyrant of Samos. Silason and Darius had first met when both were in Egypt, during the reign of Cambyses, and the Samian exile had ingratiated himself to the young Persian noble. Once Darius had gained power, Silason had traveled to Susa and requested the great king's support in overthrowing Samos' current ruler, a noble named Myandrios. Darius had agreed, tempted by the prospect of a Samian tyrant sympathetic to Persian wishes. Myandrios and his fellow Samian elites were caught flat-footed by the arrival of the Persian fleet on their doorstep. After first agreeing to accept Silason's tyranny, the Samians soon reneged and launched a revolt. Otanis responded by unleashing Persian forces against the island's defenders. In desperation, Myandrios even tried to bribe King Cleomenes to send Spartan aid, but to no effect. In the end, the Persians were victorious, and Silosan was installed as a tyrant, but with a terrible loss of Samian life. Years later, plagued by nightmares, Otanis would make a concerted effort to repopulate the island. It didn't take long for the Greeks of the eastern Aegean to learn of the conquest of Samos and the fearful proximity of Persian power. Otanis reported back to Darius that many islands were already considering making the symbolic tribute of earth and water. The great king received the news gladly. Maybe it was finally time to turn his attentions to the west. The same year, 514 BC, witnessed a sharp change of course in Athens. For a dozen years, Hippias and Hipparchus had managed the city's affairs according to their father's example. Their growing sense of comfort and security was underlined by the potential rivals they allowed to hold city office. One archon during the period was Miltiades, nephew of the earlier Philate leader who'd captured the Thracian shore of the Hellespont for Pisistratus. In 515 BC, when his brother Stesagoras died, Hippias and Hipparchus dispatched Miltiades to assume his brother's former role as vassal tyrant of the region. Miltiades knew that his brother had been an unpopular ruler, plagued by wars and revolts. Deciding that a firmer hand was necessary, Miltiades began his tyranny by imprisoning local leaders and raising a force of 500 mercenaries to help keep order. He also formed an alliance with King Aloris of neighboring Thrace by marrying his daughter Hegesipyla. To the Athenians, the elevation of Miltiades to Archon, then Tyrant, was at least consistent with long-term Pisistratid policy. Far more of a shocker was the Archonship of Cleisthenes, an Alcmeonid noble and descendant of the same Megacles who'd cost Pisistratus his second tyranny. 
why Hippias and Hipparchus had overturned his family's exile and let Cleisthenes hold the city's highest office was a bit of a head-scratcher. Of course, being an Alcmeonid, Cleisthenes tried to make his archonship something more than titular, a transgression for which he and the rest of his clan were once again banished from Athens. But still, minor blips aside, the tyranny of Hippias and Hipparchus remained both subliminal and popular. 514 BC was, as I said, the year things went truly pear-shaped. And it's appropriately ironic that perhaps the most momentous event in the entire history of Western civilization, the invention of democracy, should begin with something as basic and sordid as a lover's quarrel. Sometime previously, Hipparchus had taken a shine to a young man named Harmodius, reputed to be the handsomest guy in Athens, which was all well and good, except for the fact that Harmodius already had a lover, an insanely jealous lover, named Aristogiton. After some initial flirtation, Harmodius dropped Hipparchus like bad Corinthian pottery, then went on to tell his lover about the tyrant's advances. Feeling spurned, Hipparchus went on to embarrass Harmodius's sister in a public forum. Long story short, things were getting super catty. In fact, they were becoming downright Kardashian-esque. The situation came to a head during that year's Panathenaean festival. Hipparchus was working the crowd when he was suddenly set upon by both Harmodius and Aristogiton. The tyrant's bodyguards managed to kill Harmodius and seized Aristogiton, but it was too late. Hipparchus had already been stabbed to death. Hippias was beside himself with grief. His brother, the closest person to him in the world, and his partner in governing the greatest city in Greece, was dead. And for what? Of course, the captive Aristogiton was tortured in prison and soon confessed the base motive for the crime. But even after his execution, Hippias remained inconsolable. His family had given Athens everything, and what had they gotten in return? Murder and betrayal. Even worse, rumors had begun to spread that the Tyrannicides, the name quickly bestowed upon Harmodius and Aristogiton, had not been acting out of petty malice, but instead striking a symbolic blow against tyranny and oppression. In his sorrow and fury, Hippias's mind began to turn on a single dark thought. You think you've seen tyranny and oppression? Athenians, you've seen nothing yet. Speaking of tyranny and oppression, in 514 BC, Rome was still under the rule of its final Etruscan king, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus. When we last left the city, around 530 BC, Tarquin had engaged Latin auxiliaries to double the effective size of Rome's army, then used his new military machine to attack the neighboring Volsci. While the ensuing conflict would rage on and off for decades, Rome did manage to score an early victory by capturing the wealthy town of Suessa Pometia. Tarquin would use the ensuing spoils to complete the erection of the great temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus on the Capitoline Hill. 
In doing so, he'd be forced to level the Tarpeian Rock, the sheer cliff overlooking the Roman Forum, where murderers, traitors, and liars were ritually executed. The king's next target was the Latin city of Gabii, which had spurned his earlier offer of Latin unity under Roman auspices. When the city proved too well defended to take by force, Tarquin devised a clever strategy. He had his son, Aaron's, claim he was switching sides due to ill-treatment by his father. Since ill-treatment was kind of Tarquin's thing, his story was apparently convincing. The Gabian defenders were overjoyed at the betrayal, and entrusted Aaron's with a military command. The deception was furthered when the Roman army feigned fear and fled once Arun's led Gabian forces out against them. With Arun's standing in the city now unassailable, he began to accuse numerous Gabian nobles of treasonous activities, having some killed and others exiled. Once its leadership had been decimated, Arun's had little difficulty convincing the city to finally surrender to his father. Tarquin also waged war against the Sabines, renewed a peace treaty with the Etruscans, and established new Roman colonies at Signia and Circii. On the home front, the king also completed upgrades to the Cloaca Maxima, Rome's great sewer, and the Circus Maximus, as well as the city's roads and military defenses. All in all, pretty standard Greek tyrant fare, which was, of course, the model the king was emulating. Legend has it that one day, while Tarquin was holding court, he had a very special visitor. The Cumaean Sibyl, the oracle of Apollo from the Greek colony of Cumae, near modern Naples, brought with her nine books of prophecy, which she offered to sell to the king for an enormous sum. When Tarquin refused, she burned three books on the spot, then offered to sell him the remaining six, at the original price. When he again refused, she burned three more books, then offered the remaining three, again for the original price. Tarquin famously lost this epic battle of nerves and purchased the remaining books, whereupon the Sibyl went on her way. The Sibylline books were secured in the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill, to be consulted only in emergencies. Some believed that their eventual destruction, in 405 AD by the general Stilicho, led directly to Rome's fall in a Visigothic invasion a few years later. As it turned out, the Sibylline books weren't Tarquin's only dabbling in the supernatural. At some point during his reign, the king dispatched his three sons, Aaron's, Titus, and his youngest, Sextus, to travel to the famous oracle at Delphi and ask her who should be the next king of Rome. Her response, cryptic as always, was that the next of them to kiss his mother would rule. As the party was preparing for their return trip, one of their traveling companions, a cousin with a reputation as a dullard, stooped low to kiss the ground. Tarquin's sons, if they witnessed it, probably laughed. But that was okay. Lucius Junius Brutus had spent much of his life concealing his intellect, the better to defend himself against the intrigues of his uncle's court. In fact, Tarquin had executed Brutus's own brother, the standard fate meted out to any man of power or ability in Rome. 
Brutus had no doubt that Tarquin's time would come. Gaining the throne through murder, culling a generation of Rome's best and brightest, and forcing the lower classes to labor on his many civic projects. It was a veritable recipe for resentment and disaster. In the meantime, Brutus believed that he'd correctly divined the oracle's message. After all, they were all children of the earth, and that being the case, Brutus had been first to kiss his mother. Surely that signified a prominent role for him in the future of Rome. Next episode, as Darius seeks Persian conquests in the West, major, epic, earth-shattering events forever change the status quo in the major cities of both Athens and Rome. This is, indeed, the big one. Republic and democracy. Next time on The Ancient World.